As soon as the adolescents settle down, we're, we're going to be talking about adolescents. Hey, there's a guy. Just one moment. Adolescents always point fingers. Mm. Excuse me while I get the gum out of my mouth. I might choke on it. Well, let me open with prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for calling us to you through your son. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together. You have called us in in your word to grow in the knowledge of you. And Father, I pray that that will happen this morning, both through the material in this Saints School class and the worship service in which we praise you and sit under the preaching of your word. Father, again, may this morning glorify your name. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. I think the, this is the third week. First week, Blake Johnson um, provided us a biblical view of a Christian who is content with where God placed him. He's content with the skills that God gave him. He takes pleasure in them, and that's the new radical, as opposed to another who launches out and decides to save the world or make his mark or leave a legacy. That's kind of the the dichotomy we have in this <clears throat> this book. Chapter 2, last week, James Savage uh, addressed us to answer, and this is just, I'm doing it in very simple terms, just, you know, briefly going over what they, they talked about. He, he tackled the obvious question, well, is that uh, a man who can just sit back in his comfort and uh, enjoy just the ordinary and be content and the provisions that God has given him. And it's kind of a call to passivity, and that's not the call. It's not passivity. It's not, uh, it's not a mediocre life. The picture is not a man sitting in his recliner. So then we get into this particular chapter, which is titled The Young and the Restless. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you. Does that make sense? It makes sense for people sometimes in teaching and in, in lectures. Uh, in this chapter, Michael Horton does not always distinguish between he's referring to the church or the society. And it's pretty obvious most of the time. But for our purposes, just considering these are admonitions and considerations that are addressed Uh, in reference to the church. And if it isn't, it'll be obvious otherwise. He begins the first section with, we've got a problem. Houston, we've got a problem. And it's with the young and the restless. And that description may comprise more than, than more folks than meets the eye. In his diagnosis, he traces the problem back to its beginning and brings it forward to our present age. In the next section, he admits being young also means being restless. And he describes it. Uh, and then in a manner, he brings some criticism. In the, thir- in the third section, he takes us through a short rendition of biblical growth. 
Next, he seems to change gears and focuses on generational connections and the responsibilities of passing along the faith. In the fifth section, Horton puts his psychiatric hat on and helps us analyze the thoughts and desires of, of the young and restless in some different various worldviews. From there, he points an accusing finger at the past and present generations, comprising of the boomers, born between 1946 and 64, the Gen Xers, born between 1965 and 1984, and the Gen Yers, or millennials, born between 1985 and 1995. And these, these numbers probably are somewhat fluid, at least the later ones. I think the boomers is, is pretty settled. How many here are in the boomer Baby boomer between most, okay. What about Gen Yers? I mean Gen Xers. Between, there's one, one Gen Xer between 1965 and 84. Anybody between 1985 and 1995? Oh, we good. Got more of them than more Yers than Xs. Um, then he closes with the large gorilla in the room which is the longest section. Probably this is the longest, this is the longest chapter in the book, I think, but this is the longest section in this chapter. And he references the age of technology and information. So let's dive in and hope it comes together and makes sense and we can finish it. So back to the first section. He starts the chapter with quotes from an article in Christianity Today by Thomas Bergler. It's with an E and not a U. That, you know, I don't know if that's important. He titles his article, When Are We Going to Grow Up? And then he says, We Are All Adolescents. And I had a question. You know, you always wanted to find your terms. Art Johnson taught us that a long time ago. Tell me, what is an adolescent or what is adolescence? Anybody want to? Not grown up. Okay, that's, that's in it. Can you be more specific? A time period. And I know you probably don't want to say it because it's, you know, it's kind of an embarrassing word. Yeah, Tom? Okay. Uh, probably it's a little more extensive than that, but it, it's from puberty to maturity. That's, that's well, I, I, I'm, I'm using Webster. And I don't know that the Bible clearly gives a definition. But you can see in maturity, if you define that, that means development, a mature tomato or whatever, full development, uh, complete. Well, that probably puts us all in the adolescent stage, maybe. But really, I think this, this passage, I mean, this section, this chapter is primarily about young adulthood. That's, that's where we're going. And the their maturation in a very difficult environment. He starts with, he's tracing the youth emphasis on youth. He said it started with the YMCA and other similar organizations way back when. I can't remember when it started. I think it was primarily in London, but probably in other places, where there was an effort to minister to at-risk kids in a city environment. Uh, from that point, it soon came within society, the demographic, the unique demographic of teens. 
And that was the focus after that for a while, and still is. The advertisers love that particular demographic. And soon after that, the church established youth groups, and I like this, this description, youth groups as an adolescent-friendly version of the church. From this, a new adulthood emerged, looking a lot like the old adolescent not outgrowing the spiritualities of the youth group. So he's he's kind of pointing fingers, being a little sarcastic here, and probably has a lot of truth in him. Now he says it's possible to go from the nursery, nursery to the children's church, the Sunday school, the youth group, a college ministry, without experiencing church membership, having never or rarely experiencing or recognizing the means of grace the weekly service, and many never being baptized or instructed in a common catechism in preparation for making a profession or coming to the Holy Communion. As a result, today the young and restless seek the churches deemed most alive and on the cutting edge and most likely in tune with the culture. I think we see that. I think there is, I mean, he may be going a little far on some of these things, and especially, I don't think that would particularly apply specifically to this church. I don't think we have all of those involved in this church, but in a big church, that certainly probably could be true. Let's now visit his brief summary of young and young is restless. In other words, young is restless. It is normal. Most of you know this, of course. From the moment of crawling, there is restless exploration, wonder, distraction, attention shifting in all directions, walking off, wandering in every direction, everywhere, especially when you're in a supermarket. They're overly trusting, but if they stay that way, they become gullible. They're impatient. Are you there yet, Daddy? We all probably identify with that. Joe and I can't identify that as much as many of you, but we can sort of identify it with the fact that we used to, I used to say that all the time. Also, he talked about a fishing trip that he had with his son. Uh, and he was teaching his son how to fish, and he said his son would not leave that fishing line in the water long enough to catch any living thing. So I, I can kind of identify with that. I did a lot of fishing with my dad. So anyway, uh, he says, all these things are normal as they grow, but carried into adulthood, they become rather aggravating. So then he gets into the area of growing up. We enter God's kingdom as children, but we are not to remain perpetually, perpetually locked in the restlessness and adolescence of that Attitude. Eventually there's commitment, there's roots, and even maybe a commitment or investment in a long-term relationship. Ephesians 4 informs us that our responsibility is be about the building up of the church, attaining maturity, and in quotes, so that we may no longer be children. However, failure to grow promotes suspicion of authority, overconfidence, restlessness, and rootlessness, and drifting. 
in the church in Corinth, we had gifted personalities that took the stage, and he says it looked more like American Idol than a church, the body of Christ. Paul referred to them as people of flesh, infants in Christ, and children. The author in Hebrews 5 refers to the church as dull of hearing, needing basics when you ought to be teachers. Hebrews 6, the author urges them to learn disciplines that lead to maturity in the faith. Otherwise, apostasy is in real danger. Maturity brings realization that we are no longer the center of the universe. took me a while to get there. No question that to be young is restless and can lead to recklessness without guidance. A man named Walt Henderson, who's no longer with us, but he was a navigator and then he uh, spread his wings and developed men's ministries all over the United States, New Zealand, Hong Kong. And I was involved in navigators in my early walk and uh, visited with him a lot, sat under his teaching. And he said, Art, be sure you develop your disciplines while you're young, because when you are old, it is very difficult to start developing disciplines. It was wise advice. Timothy, though young, was urged by Paul to set an example of maturity within the church. In Titus 2, Paul urged the younger men to be self-controlled, using that term four times in that chapter. So he goes from growth to now God's generation and ours. Of course, every generation is God's. We know that, but... He's trying to make a point. God is identified in His Word as the God of Israel, the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a God of nations, of peoples, of promises, of individuals. He says, I will be, and I quote, I will be a God to you and to your children after you to a thousand generations. These promises, calls, and His mighty acts are passed from generation to generation by the older and the wiser members of a, young, of the, of a church and uh, to the younger. Christianity is inherently, inherently an intergenerational faith passed from one generation to another. He refers to a, a divisive decree of novelty in this particular culture, bombarding, bombarding especially youth, um, with an idea that you are unique, that you are special, that you have a destiny ahead of you. So I, you kind of see that if you just, no matter what, I mean, whether it's social media or TV. Um, and I think, I, I think you agree with him that that um, decree of novelty is probably there. And, in, 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 of course, novelty is different than ordinary in most people's uh, ideas. Then he jumps on the baby boomers again, says they are noted for refusing to accept the ordinary. Most of our people in here are baby boomers. They make every experience a watershed, every meal extraordinary, every friendship epical, every concert superb, 
every sunset, and I like this term, meta-celestial, and so on. One can easily see how they may ruin the ordinary meals, the events and sunsets, sunsets experienced by ordinary folks. In today's pressures, we see children's birthdays, an all-day event at Chuck E. Cheese's. Um, we see weddings patterned after bridal magazine or movie set. Push, we see pushing for the dean's list by child and parent alike getting to the best graduate school. Or pushing for academic research when you're there that is nothing short of brilliant or groundbreaking in order to get the top-notch job. There's a ministry called Grad Resources that pinpoints their ministry to graduate students. It's a very interesting ministry. You can look it up online, but they have, uh, there's so much stress in, in graduate school that that particular demographic has the highest uh, percentage of suicides. And they have a hotline for that purpose that they say is readily used. Uh, it's 24 hours a day. Enjoying some normal recreation in a public park can seem rather ordinary, especially in the light of extreme sports, which we see uh, on the YouTube, TV, etc. cetera. Uh, it's kind of difficult to enjoy recreation in a park if there is alongside of it of a big concrete park for skateboarding. So it seems like, you know, you, you try to... The, the culture is trying to push out the ordinary and the normal. Uh, his point is, living under the alluring lights of a Las Vegas sculpture is difficult to enjoy the more familiar, routine, and common pleasures of life. Let me tell you, at 80, that's not an issue at all. He then moves into supports. At one time we were playing on a team for the team, but now it's an occasion for us or our child to stand out. The game can no longer be just a game, but a spectacle. And sadly, that's true of many churches. It must be a spectacle. The next section is titled The Hedonist Paradox. Pretty tough section. Not sure I followed it completely. But he gets in there and he ties together hedonism, which is one devoted to pleasures of life, narcissism, one devoted to self, and stoicism, one devoted to duty and discipline. All of these are somewhat related to a person wanting to make something of himself or otherwise make a mark in the world or otherwise leave a legacy. Uh, you can kind of see that because all of them are focused on self, on one person, yourself. Ultimately, such efforts become goals, become, I mean, become idols. The goals become idols. Without a greater object, it becomes self and idols, and self cannot fulfill. We see that uh, in Ecclesiastes. The preacher in Ecclesiastes confirms that completely. Horton states that one cannot find meaning, fulfillment, or purpose by looking for it, but by discovering something else outside of self. That discovery comes with careful discernment, which takes time 
intentionality, and community. Horton started out this particular section with a statement. It's on page 55, which I'll read in a minute. And it seemed to apply to a particular article that I've seen this week. I've got a couple of articles that seem to apply to what... When you start out this article, I mean this particular section on the hedonist paradox, he says, we came from nowhere, we are going nowhere, and somewhere in the middle of it all, we have to make a big splash. The article that I applied that to was an article on the front page of the sports section last week, and it shows a man by the name of Bill Haas. I know you can't see this picture, but it shows him as he knocks a ball. He's down in some water. His, his, I, know, I think it's a three-par, but his shot went into the water. He goes down, weighs down in there, and you can see it. And so he's enough so he can get it. So he knocks it out of the water onto the green, wins the hole, and goes on and wins the tournament. It happens to be the f- tournament that's involved with a FedEx Cup. And as a result, he wins $10 million, along with whatever money came with the tournament. So he's obviously, on the PGA Tour, a successful golfer. His father is Jay Haas, I think that's his name, was a good PGA player, and is now on the Champions Tour with the old guys playing golf. But what brought me to that deal is last year he was driving with a friend of his Friends was driving. He was the passenger in some kind of fancy car. It was at night, and they were going a little too fast, and his friend lost control, ran into a tree, killed his friend, and injured him pretty severely so that he couldn't play golf for a while. And I think he's not, I think his first tournament since that accident, which occurred maybe a year ago or last spring, I didn't, I can't remember the date. I think it's next week he's going to play for the first time. Anyway, they were interviewing him about that accident. Here's, here's kind of the way the interview went. Uh, they ask him about how, you know, he's going, and they say, he, along with l- leaning on his wife and his family, he has spent time with a therapist to cope with the wide range of emotions and the lingering questions. This is quotes from, from Jay, I mean from Bill. I don't know that I won't have recurring images and thoughts and feelings about that night, he said. And then quoting him again, why was he taken and I wasn't? I ask why all the time from the people who have reached out to me and the advice I've been given, you can't ask why in this life. Life happens in ways you can't explain. There's no point in asking. I won't solve anything and it only brings more questions. Which is kind of sad. I mean, he's a, he's real well. He's very popular on the tour. Not, he seems to be a real nice guy, gentle guy, and he doesn't have any answers. And he's right in the middle of the young and restless. Okay, where was I here? Okay, hedonist paradox. Now we move to a section what he, what he, which he calls "We Want It All: Autonomy." and community. So he starts out again with the baby boomers. He uses a book by the name of David Brooks, and David refers to the baby boomers as bobos in paradise. They demand autonomy. 
but resist beliefs, norms, and values. They crave community, but avoid accountability. You kind of see that to some extent in the larger churches. You can get lost in the community. There's no accountability. And, of course, I think we all may struggle with autonomy. I think one of the the uh, examples he gave in there is we are in our air conditioned, air conditioned, no, our automobile, air conditioned, suburbial, suburbial society rolling to our garage without having to bother with anybody. I started thinking about that. The first time Joe and I had a garage that we could go into, we had garages we couldn't get in there. <laughs> and shut the door is the last five years in our new home. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, Horton, using other references that show that the children of the boomer situation, the Gen X's and the Gen Y's, though more confident, assertive, and entitled, are more miserable than ever before, having the same issues, I guess, to a greater extent. From there, he moves to the evangelical churches, noting that the average person cannot articulate the basic message of Christianity. He points out, and I, can, I, I, I know that I can identify with that because I listen to White Horse and I get their, their discs every month. And he has people go in, you know, like people on Fox that go in and interview people in different places. What they, who's the president? What's this guy? What's this picture? And uh, they go in and interview seminaries and Bible colleges. And they ask them questions. They don't know anything, it seems like. They cannot articulate anything. And they disagree with everything. When they bring up a biblical passage, they disagree with it. So it's really interesting to listen to all those interviews. I went to a friend's funeral in Independence, Kansas, about two years ago. And I, took, I drove up there with another class, two classmates of mine. <laughs> Neither one of them, they don't have a clue. One of them claims to be a Christian, but I don't know. That's up to God. I said, okay, we're going to do Christianity 101. We went two hours trying to figure out what were the Ten Commandments. They could come up with one or two, and that's all they could come up with. I'm going to give up. I gave up. But we had a good time. It's kind of funny. Uh, he points out that the internet is the quarry from which youth craft their selves and advertise their desired persona. They are marrying later, having kids later, and when they get tied down, it's very disconcerting. So that section is a segue into the last section in his chapter, which is the longest in which he brings technology to focus on these particular issues. This last section is called Deep Sea Diving in a Jet Ski Age. This title is a quote from a book by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows. I don't know if anybody's read that, but it sure sounds like an interesting book. Also quoted is a man by the name of Keith Abloh. Maybe some of y'all have seen him on TV. He's a famous psychiatrist, TV personality, and author. And 
I'm going to have to read some of those quotes to really do them justice. So I'm going to go through them. Keith Abloh, we are raising a generation of deluded narcissists. A number of recent studies point up the toxic psychological impact of media and technology on children, adolescents, and young adults. And, of course, that's what Horton is pointing, he's probably pointing most of this book to, particularly as it regards turning, to, turning them into fall or fake celebrities, the equivalent of lead actors in their own fictionalized life stories. He adds, On Facebook, young people can fool themselves into thinking they have hundreds or thousands of friends. They can delete unflattering comments. They can block anyone who disagrees with them or pokes holes in their inflated self-esteem. They can choose to show the world only flattering, sexy, or funny photographs of themselves, speak in pithy, short posts, and publicly connect to movie stars and professional athletes and musicians they like. Using Twitter, young people can pretend they are worth following as though they have real-life fans when all that is really happening is the mutual fanning of false love and false fame. Using computer games, our sons and daughters can pretend they are Olympians, Formula One, Formula One drivers, rock stars, or sharp shooters. It goes on on the next page. Tragically, narcissism frequently leads to self-loathing. As Abloh says, false pride can never be sustained. They are doing anything to distract themselves from the fact that they feel empty inside and unworthy. However, the bubble will burst. God's work in the heart. 
was good. An orthopedic de- delight this, this age. And they're stumbling over curves and everywhere. This is the third chapter in an 11-chapter book, so I don't think he's going to cover a lot more material. Yeah, Blake. And when they're falling apart, we still have a faithful God. That young lady comes into church. She gets a piece of Christ, but she walks off and leaves the body of Christ to fend for itself. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Solution is God, His Word, and His community, His body. Solves a lot of things. Ordinary means the great. You're pointing at. Mike usually does. I'm surprised he's been kind of quiet. Are you young and restless? And being offended by all this?
There's no question that that's what the intent is. The older folks would certainly like to have the strength and energy of the youth to do what they would like to do, for, you know, for the community. Do they also point out the bird as he flies by? Sorry you said that. It's getting that way, huh? Yeah, Barney. <laughs> well, I mentioned that twice that this term adolescence may include a whole lot more folks than we we want to, you know, admit to. I think restlessness, you know, restless in the sense that we cannot rest until in, in the service of the Lord, but restlessness, you see that in younger people, more in the physical and desire to make a point, to make a place, and stuff like that. I think that's what he's talking about. We're, we never arrive, so in a sense, we, we don't want to be in our a resting position in that let go and let God, so to speak. Letha, <clears throat> are you an Xer or a Yer? You're an Xer, aren't you?
Right. And he may call us to another place. After that contentment is developed in one spot, you may be called to another place. Let me ask one more question. How many here are part of the silent generation? Dick Tillman's would probably be able to answer the silent generation. Sometimes referred to as the traditional generation. And that's the ones born before 1945. Anybody here? But any, well, Wikipedia, Wikipedia did, or Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> the, okay, I'll just call it the unknown generation then. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's, I guess, time's up. You're dismissed. You bet.